Well, good morning. Good to see you all today. If I haven't met you, my name is Matt. I'd love to meet you in the lobby or outside after we conclude our worship service today. Uh, we are spending a couple of weeks working through the New Testament book Philemon. So for those who may have missed last week, I want to briefly recap what we talked about, um, some of those introductory matters before we jump back into the content of this letter today. So we're reading the book of Philemon. So this is a letter that Paul writes. Paul writes it from prison. We don't know for sure, but presumably he is in prison in the city of Ephesus, and he is writing, sending this letter to an individual named Philemon, a man who had come to faith but was living about 100 miles away from Ephesus or so in a city called Colossae. What we discover is that Philemon, like most individuals in the first century Roman world who had any financial means at all, Philemon was a slave owner. This was not uncommon at the time, but what we see is that Paul is writing a letter to Philemon, this slave owner, and Philemon isn't, he is at the center of this letter, but there's another individual at the center of Paul's appeal, a man named Onesimus, who was one of Philemon's slaves. Now, Onesimus had apparently at some point left Philemon's home, either as a runaway, a fugitive slave, or, or maybe he was on a mission specifically to find somebody who could help him reconcile a difference he had with his master. We don't know all of the specifics for sure. But either way, eventually Onesimus ends up in the city of Ephesus where he encounters Paul. He meets the Apostle Paul. Paul leads him to faith in Jesus Christ, and they actually become quite close to the point where Paul views Onesimus as a son. He says, I am a father to this man. So Paul has become quite close to Onesimus. And so he decides, in addition to the big letter that he is going to write to the church in Colossae, what we know as the book of Colossians, he decides that he's also going to write a personal letter, a letter specifically addressed to Philemon to deal with Philemon's relationship with Onesimus. So if we look at verses 4 through 7, we read these last week, but we'll return to them. This is what Paul says at the beginning of this letter. I thank God. I thank God when I pray for you, Philemon. When I think about your love toward Jesus, when I think about your love for the saints, I pray that your faith would grow for the sake of Christ. And then he goes a step further and says, you bring me much joy. You bring comfort to me, my brother. Now, to be honest, this sounds an awful lot like my approach as a child when I was trying to convince my parents to let me do something. Maybe you're familiar with this approach. Let me butter you up a little bit. Let me compliment you. See how polite I am? You've really done a great job raising me. Now that you have all of these positive thoughts about me, let me go in for the ask. Hey, can I spend the night with Jimmy? I actually didn't have a friend named Jimmy, but you get the point. Paul is laying it on pretty thick here. You could say that he's just 
showing his deep love for Philemon, that he's seeking to lovingly compel Philemon to choose the appropriate path, or maybe to you when you read Paul's words at the beginning here, it just seems like flattery used for emotional manipulation, which was my approach as a kid. Either way, Paul really is, I think we could agree, appealing to Philemon's emotions. He affirms some of the Christ-like, some of the admirable characteristics Philemon possesses so that he can then say, act in accordance with those values. Act in accordance with your love and faith in Jesus Christ. So this introduction seems rather ordinary and Maybe it would even seem like a rather boring greeting at the beginning of a letter until you begin to realize some of the pressure that this is putting on Philemon. So think about this. This letter is being composed in public to a certain degree. We understand that at least Timothy is there as it is being written, and there are likely others who are there listening to this letter dictated from Paul and hearing him work out his arguments verbally for this letter. And then there's somebody, a scribe or somebody that is jotting this all down, composing the letter. So it's composed in public. And if that wasn't enough, we also understand that the letter was also read in public. It was read in front of the church in Colossae, a church that possibly even met in Philemon's home. So what does this mean? Well, Philemon's friends were there. Those who had discipled Philemon were probably there. Maybe those who Philemon was himself discipling, all present as this is being read. It's quite possible that Onesimus, the slave at the center of this letter, was present. He may have even delivered the letter to Philemon himself. There were likely other slaves present during the reading of this letter. So the circumstances surrounding both the composition and the delivery and the reading of this letter are putting quite a bit of pressure implicitly on Philemon. Now, the question that we alluded to last week, a question that I want to return to today, was this. What is Paul really arguing for throughout this letter? Is Paul arguing for Philemon to go ahead and liberate Onesimus? Was Paul even subtly condemning and calling the institution of slavery itself into question, Or at the other end of the spectrum, is Paul just another product of of his time? Should Paul have gone further? Should he have been more clear in his denunciation of slavery? Could he have been? Was that even a cognitive possibility? Was it possible, given his historical context, to come out and condemn the institution of slavery? N.T. Wright argues that it was so common in the first century Roman world, if, if we want to try to understand what calling it out like that directly would have been like, it would be like today saying, everybody in our society needs to today get rid of your car. So we understand that there are some problematic things with cars and emissions and how that affects our 
environment, so we all need to get rid of our cars today. While we may understand that's probably a positive action, for that to actually take place is going to be quite challenging. Everybody's just going to dismiss the person that says you need to do that today. So is this even a possibility for Paul? Or does Paul know what he's doing in remaining vague? So he seems to be a little bit ambiguous at times, but is it possible that he's actually proposing something that is absolutely countercultural, something that is subversive because of his convictions about Jesus Christ? Scholars are split on this question, and perhaps that is just as well because maybe it is a little bit of both. It is hard to know for sure, but in my mind, Paul's approach to this issue seems to be intentional. This is not just happenstance, but Paul is making this argument based on his understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, N.T. Wright places this little story, places this book, Philemon, one of the throwaway books in the New Testament, if there ever was one. I mean, we often disregard it and forget it's even a part of the New Testament. N.T. Wright places this right at the beginning of his massive work called Paul in the Faithfulness of God, suggesting that understanding the arguments Paul is making in this little letter to Philemon is critical in understanding Paul's overarching understanding of the gospel message. What's going on here is central to the gospel. So let's continue reading verse 8. Again, this is Paul speaking to Philemon about his slave Onesimus. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So Paul does appear to be approaching this with pastoral sensitivity. He says, finally, even look, I could come out and command you to release this man. I have the authority to do that, and I am undeniably in the right when it comes to this situation, but I prefer to appeal to you out of love. I want to invite you into this place where you begin to recognize that this is the right and good path. I don't want to force this on you without a change of heart because if your heart doesn't change regarding this issue, this same pattern is going to continue to pop up in the future. So I want your heart to change in regard to how you view and understand your relationship with this individual. So Paul begins his appeal by pointing to Philemon's characteristics. This is the admirable qualities that you have. This is the Christ-like character that you have put on. Act in accordance with that. And then Paul ups the ante a little bit. 
he adds another layer into his emotional appeal. He says, this is who you are, Philemon. Now let me tell you a little bit about me as I write this letter to you. I am writing this to you as a prisoner. I'm writing this to you as a prisoner. You respect me. You honor me. We are brothers in Christ, and I am an, a, a spiritual authority in your life, and yet I am currently in prison. I am in bondage, just like Onesimus. Onesimus and I are actually, we, we have much more in common than you might think. And on the surface, to everybody in society, it would appear as though Paul and Philemon are much more alike. But Paul says, in reality, I'm in prison. I have much more in common with your slave Onesimus than you might realize. He has become like a son to, to, to me. So Paul has identified with the victim in this situation from a place of authority and in so doing has empowered this slave Onesimus in a way. Subtly, Paul is arguing to Philemon, look, we are equals. And if I am the same as your slave and yet I am in spiritual authority over you, you might want to reconsider how you view your relationship with this man. I think this is a powerfully persuasive rhetorical move that Paul makes here that can go unnoticed. I am in prison. I am a father to the person you are keeping in bondage while I myself am in bondage. So if you love me, and if you can have compassion on me in my predicament, that must impact how you view Onesimus. It has to change how you view those under your authority. Do you see that move that Paul makes there? Let's continue reading verse 12. He says this, I am sending, you, I, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So again, Paul is not looking to compel Philemon to do something he doesn't want to do, at least here at the beginning. Instead, he seems to be seeking for Philemon's eyes to be opened to the reality of this situation in light of what Christ has done. He invites Philemon into a change of heart based on his Christian convictions that would then perhaps, hopefully without compulsion, lead to manumission of Onesimus. So Paul says, look, I want Onesimus to stay here in Ephesus with me. He would be a tremendous help for the cause of Christ in this city. But first, before any of that can, uh, occurs, Paul is insistent that this relationship is one that needs to be restored. These are two brothers. Yes, they have a lot of history, and it's quite possible that that history is an ugly one. And Paul says this relationship needs to be reconciled. So I think what Paul is calling Philemon to do is actually 
much more revolutionary and demanding on Philemon than just manumission. Manumission would have been a simpler step, I think. But Paul suggests that what I'm calling you to do in reconciling with your brother, this is the work of the gospel. This is the important work of the gospel, as important as anything Paul was doing in Ephesus, this relationship needed to be restored. But again, the question might be raised, and has often been raised, why didn't Paul come out and compel him? This seems to be an appropriate time, if there ever was an appropriate time, to use the heavy-handed, top-down, authoritarian approach. Why didn't Paul level an outright attack on the institution of slavery? I think there are a variety of possibilities. I, I think Anglican scholar Scott McKnight has something important to say in this discussion. He argues that when it comes to this issue, as when it comes to many issues that Paul addresses in the church, but specifically when it comes to this issue, Paul is not anti-imperial, but rather he's supra-imperial. I'll explain what he's getting at there. Paul is not anti-imperial, but he's supra-imperial. Paul isn't really concerned with the societal institution and correcting that or changing that. He understands that he doesn't have the power to change society overnight. He is much more concerned, it seems to be, with changing the church with helping the church understand, those who follow Jesus, helping them understand if you're following Christ who has come to liberate, who has come to set free those who are in captivity, if you're following Jesus, that has to impact these social arrangements within the church. Paul understands that fighting this battle at a societal level, at least it seems he understands that that would be a losing battle. A theological argument in this tiny little letter that probably wasn't going to do much to change society. That would be like me writing a letter to one of you saying you need to get rid of your car and then expecting all of our society to get rid of their cars. That is an absurdity, right? It's not going to happen. New Testament scholar Craig Keener has argued this. That sometimes we are annoyed that Paul did not attack slavery more directly. He says, but we should not forget that these few sentences were not meant to address the institution of slavery itself. And he brings it into our context saying, pastors do not counsel someone struggling in their marriage by discussing weddings or marriage-related laws in society. We do not counsel someone struggling with drugs by discussing the legality of drugs, the international sources of drugs, and so forth. He says, instead, we try to help the person deal with the drug problem. Larger structural issues matter, Keener says, but they are not the immediate subject of our counseling. In the same way, Paul's letters to real congregations addressed slaves in the situation they were in. So again, Paul understands that he is not going to be able to single-handedly change this cultural institution, but he does have influence in the church, and that is his focus. 
So while Paul's letters might not reveal Paul's views on the larger issues of slavery, the question of slavery, I do think implicitly in these letters he does show his hand. And as we suggested last week, the book of Ephesians may give us a glimpse into Paul's views. So Paul is addressing the church. He's not attacking this issue from the other end, arguing that society must abandon this system that was ingrained in the culture. He addresses a specific issue in the church, not the cultural institution. And while he may not denounce slavery outright, he does propose, I think, a Christian ethic that if followed, would conceivably begin dismantling the practice itself. In fact, I think that's what the history of the church shows happened at various times. So yes, in Ephesians chapter 6, we do see Paul call bondservants to submit to their earthly masters. But as he does a chapter before in Ephesians chapter 5 with the husband-wife relationship, Paul argues here as well for what? For mutual submission. Mutual submission. So a slaveholder in the church must also submit to their slave? That doesn't really make sense. How is that institution going to continue to exist if there is this significant change in the arrangement? And that's the point. Let's read what he says. Chapter 6, verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Then verse 9, masters, do the same to them. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, that doesn't seem all that shocking. That doesn't seem crazy at all to our 21st century ears, but this is, in the first century context, this is a revolutionary statement. This is explicitly challenging the social assumptions at work in the first century Roman world that supported slavery. Paul says, God is the only true master of all. Slaveholders, you really don't have any authority over your slaves because God is your master. God is their master. The ethical framework that Paul proposes here and elsewhere, even in Philemon, if followed, would surely begin undoing the institution of slavery, at least within the church, because that social arrangement is no longer efficient. If you are following a Christian ethic, if you are living as Christ has called you to live, that arrangement is no longer worthwhile. If a slaveholder and a slave 
are really under the same master, what's the point? There is no point. If I am to treat a slave as a master with kindness and respect and even submission, even submission to the slave, how is that relationship even going to work? It's not going to work, and it begins to shatter the very foundation that slavery is built upon. The ethic that Christ has called us to live out makes no room for domination over another person, no room for any sense of superiority, because we are all under the same master. So any sense of supremacy that might creep into our minds, we denounce, we reject it, we repent of it because it is evil and it is sinful. Let's continue reading. For this, verse 15, for this perhaps is why he has, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is where Paul's argument gets really radical, I think. We're going to explore these couple of verses in more detail next week. But Paul is calling Philemon beyond manumission. Paul is calling Philemon beyond simply releasing those under his authority, releasing his slaves, giving them their freedom back. Paul is calling Philemon to this radical, revolutionary ethic. He says, I'm going to send Onesimus back to you, but understand when he gets back to you, he is no longer a bondservant. He's coming back to you as a brother. You can't just release your brother wash your hands of what has been done, and move on. If he's no longer a bondservant but it is a brother, you are now going to have to do the difficult work of facing your sin and reconciling with your dark and ugly history with this man. We'll come back to that next week. But for now, I want to spend the rest of our time today transitioning and attempting to bridge the context because the world we live in is quite a bit different than this first century context. So how might we pull some principles from what Paul is arguing for the church in Colossae? How might we bring that into our 21st century context? Because there are some significant differences. For instance, we live in a day when fortunately, virtually all confessing Christians oppose, denounce, and are disgusted by slavery in its many forms, at least verbally. So there is quite a bit of difference. How can we begin to apply some of these concepts that we've explored through this short little series in Philemon in today's world? And I think, first of all, it begins with an acknowledgement that while there are some significant differences, those differences may not be quite as extreme as we once thought. And so we begin, I think, by acknowledging, by seeking to shine a light on the fact that slavery, oppression in general, yes, of course, but slavery, too, exists 
in our world today. It exists in our country today. Sit with that for a moment. Even right now, around the world, millions and millions of people enslaved. It's estimated that 40 million people, these figures are a couple of years old, but 40 million people today living lives in bondage and in slavery. And yes, today's slavery might not look exactly like it did throughout the history of our world. It doesn't look exactly like first century Roman slavery. It doesn't look exactly in most contexts like 19th century slavery here in America. But I don't know that those differences really soften the blow. 20% of today's slaves are enslaved in the sex slave industry. 30% of today's slaves are under the age of 18. So we are talking about our children. 30% of 40 to 50 million people under the age of 18 in slavery today. And it's not just an issue in the developing world. It's an issue here. Again, this figure is a couple of years old, but it's estimated that 60,000 individuals are in slavery in the United States of America. 60,000. This is all around us. All around us. Slavery accounts for $150 billion in terms of its global economic impact. $150 billion. These are staggering figures. It is a complex problem. It seems impossible for us to tackle it, but what do we do as followers of Jesus? What we can't do is ignore it, pretend that it doesn't exist. Do we have the power to end slavery? Did Paul have the power to change Roman culture and end slavery? Probably not, realistically speaking. But he did have authority and influence in the church, and he could help shape the future of the church, which would then hopefully shape society, and a lot of times that's what happened. And I think this is where our work begins. We understand that we can't single-handedly we certainly can't immediately end these continued and persistent forms of oppression, continued and persistent inhumane systems. We can't single-handedly and immediately end that, but we can do something. We can contribute in some way. First, we must acknowledge that it's a problem. We must understand that while we are often blinded to these issues in today's world, it's a significant problem. So we acknowledge that. We lament that reality. We also can provide financially for organizations that are sort of have boots on the ground and are working with these issues directly. We do that as a congregation. So when you contribute, some of your financial contributions are going to help in these efforts. That's a very simple step. That doesn't really cost us much, giving some money to organizations that are actually fighting real slavery today, but it's an important step, I think. 
So we acknowledge, we lament, we can contribute financially. We also repent, though, I think, of ways in which I am contributing to ongoing slavery, which maybe that sounds like an extreme statement. I mean, how am I actually, I'm not physically oppressing somebody. I'm not directly keeping somebody held down, but is it possible that the way I go about living in this world is contributing to those systems? I think it is possible. So maybe my role is to repent of some of my spending habits that have contributed and are contributing to slavery. When we spend money, we are letting our voices be heard about the type of world we want to live in. If I spend money to get something that's really cheap because I don't want to pay more money, I'm letting my voice be heard. I would rather have this item for next to free than I would for people to live with their God-given dignity. We, we don't spend money in a vacuum. And I think the question I have to ask myself is, well, is a cheap price worth the cost? To be honest with you, this is difficult for me because if you know me at all, I like a bargain. <laughs> I like to find a bargain, but I have to ask that question. Is this cheap price worth the cost? And maybe it's not even a cheap price, to, to be honest. Huge corporations in, in our country alone are charging a lot of money for product that they produce and spending millions of dollars on marketing campaigns to convince the average consumer that they really care about justice in our world and all the while behind closed doors are using what equates to slave labor. It's not just cheap prices. But am I willing to want to have my eyes open to some of these realities. Often I, I don't want my eyes to be open because then it's going to cost. I'm going to have to change some of my patterns and some of my habits. And, and to be honest, with our complex global economy, I don't know that it's even realistic for us to be entirely free of complicity when it comes to these social evils, but we at least need to seek awareness. We at least need to get to the place where we want our eyes to be open to these issues, and then when our eyes are opened, we seek change. We want to alter our spending habits so that where I'm putting my money is not contributing. I am not going to end slavery personally. But I am letting my voice be heard about the world I want to live in with how I spend my money. Or maybe we would think of something like the consumption of pornography, which is undeniably linked to exploitation and the proliferation of the international sex slave industry. There are obviously other moral considerations involved in that conversation, but how can we claim to be opposed to slavery and exploitation and the stripping of human dignity and not give a second thought to the proliferation of something that is utterly dehumanizing, that is turning individuals into objects for sexual gratification and is actually contributing to a complex system of actual slavery. 
It, it is possible to champion the cause of freedom verbally on social media and then to live in a way where our habits and our patterns are actually contributing to those inhumane, unjust systems. So there are many ways in which it is possible for us, living in the 21st century Western world where slavery is practically universally condemned, at least verbally, there are ways that we might be implicated in that sort of injustice. And we need to get to the place where we're at least willing to want to have our eyes opened. And then as our eyes open, we make changes. We sacrifice. Even if those changes and those adjustments in our spending habits cost us a great deal, we are willing to go down that path because we don't want that type of injustice to continue. We want our voices to be heard. We want dignity to be restored to all. So what do we do first? We want our eyes to be opened. We repent. We do what we can to fight systems that enslave so that every individual Every image bearer of God might live in the reality of their God-given dignity. Paul doesn't stop there. We'll pick it up next week. In addition to some of those big global issues of continued slavery, there's actually a broad concept at work in Paul's argument that is central to the gospel that is something that we all have the responsibility on a daily basis to engage in, and that is restoration and reconciliation in our personal relationships. This is what we will turn our attention to next week and discuss. Kevin, if you all want to come up, and if the rest of you want to stand as we prepare to gather around the table of our Lord, Our hope and our prayer is that as we are reading through Philemon, that our minds and our eyes would be opened to the type of oppression and injustice that is incompatible with a Christian view of the world. And as our eyes are opened, that we might have the courage to change even at great personal sacrifice, but to adjust how we are living so that dignity might be restored. We're gathering around the table of our Lord and praying that as we encounter Jesus in this meal, that he might give us the courage to live in a way, to become a people, to become a community that could change society.